Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 10. We're working our way through a major section in the book of Exodus that runs from chapter 7, verse 8, through to chapter 11, verse 10, which has as its central theme the great power confrontation between God and Pharaoh. In chapter 9, we read about plagues 5 through 7. And here in chapter 10, we will encounter plagues 8 and 9. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. They shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen, from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Here again, we are reminded that the reason that God hardened Pharaoh's heart was so that he could display the whole range of plagues that he had engineered to demonstrate the unreality of Egyptian religion in general and the supposed divinity of Pharaoh in particular. This display needed to be something that people would be talking about and thinking about for generations. It was a sign and a standard that God was planting smack dab in the middle of history in the heartland of the most powerful and important country on the earth at that point in time. Now, this is very important for us to see. This this helps us to understand how God reveals himself throughout the biblical narrative. Nahum Sarna says usefully here, the idea is that through the evocative power of narration, rather than by abstract theological discourse, The true knowledge of God is understood, is established in the mind of Israel and is sustained, closed quote. See, in the Bible, God reveals himself through acts and explanations. The Exodus is, of course, an act. It is a display of God's sovereign power to judge and to save. That act is to be reflected on by the community. And of course it will be. The deed will inspire meditation and prophetic utterance. Of course, that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. The central deed in the New Testament is, of course, the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That act is then explicated by the apostles 
and commemorated through the reading of the Gospels and through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's how revelation works in the covenant community. There is a great act of God. There is the reflection and meditation of the community inspired by the Holy Spirit and resulting in a foundation of authorized interpretation. And then there is recitation and commemoration through story, narration, and sacrament. That is how we come to know God, Old Testament and New. So, Moses and Aaron are sent back in to speak to Pharaoh and to announce the coming of an eighth great plague upon the land. This plague was to involve an invasion of locusts, the likes of which had never before been seen in the history of Egypt. You will recall that the seventh plague of hail, which we read about in chapter 9, affected primarily the flax and barley crop, which were typically harvested in late February and early March. The text of chapter 9 says explicitly that it did not destroy the wheat and emmer, which generally weren't harvested until late March, early April. So this suggests that some time has passed between the seventh plague and this eighth plague, a couple of weeks perhaps, but definitely no more than a month. All of these plagues, in fact, took place over the course of a few months within a single calendar year, running from winter through early spring. They fell in hard and devastating sequence. If the people had felt themselves fortunate to still have the harvest of one crop to look forward to, then obviously this text is saying they were in for a terrible surprise. This next plague would destroy everything that had been missed by the last. We pick up the story in verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. This is another interesting development in terms of the inner psychology of Pharaoh. This is the first time that he has offered concessions based merely upon the announcement of of a plague. This would seem to indicate that he certainly no longer has any doubts as to the nature of the superior force that he is facing. He doesn't need to be convinced of that anymore. The mere threat of further consequences moves him to action. But he is still in the negotiation phase. He is bargaining and attempting to maintain some semblance of control. The men can go and worship God, he says, but then they must return. The very idea that all the people would go without any strings attached throws him into a rage and he immediately drives Moses and Aaron out of his presence. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, 
the east wind had brought the locusts. So let's just pause here and notice how the Bible describes God using natural forces here, the east wind in this case. But also, also obviously so manipulating those forces as to generate a clearly supernatural event. This was no mere east wind bringing a few grasshoppers from overseas. This was God using an east wind to gather and relocate a particularly enormous, unprecedented, in fact, cloud of locusts such as had never been seen before nor would ever be seen again, as in fact we're told in the ensuing verses. Verse 14, the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Again, we might reasonably assume that Pharaoh would have given up the battle at this point had not the Lord acted directly and sovereignly upon his heart, as indicated in verse 20. However, Pharaoh is already culpable at this point in the narrative for sinfully resisting God, so he can by no means claim that he has been unfairly treated. Pharaoh has already crossed the line. God is merely restraining him from crossing back until he has more fully and climactically demonstrated his power in judgment and redemption. So here in this passage, we are observing how it is that God may act sovereignly in such a way as to ensure an outcome in full alignment with his preordained plan without acting unjustly or in any way doing damage to our moral will as human beings. Indeed, this was the concern of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. He said that God was acting sovereignly over the heart of Pharaoh, but then he went right on to anticipate our objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, closed quote, Romans 9, 19 to 24. So first of all here, 
Paul seems to be saying, be careful, men and women, about questioning God. It is enough for you to know that he never acts in an unjust matter. Beyond that, you should probably say very little. God has every right to act towards his creature in any way he deems fit. He has the right of ownership over them as the creator of all things. God may choose to allow some evil actors to prosper for a season so as to more fully demonstrate his just wrath against them. He may choose to make an example of them, you might say, by giving them a little more rope with which to hang themselves. God can act in any way that fits his purposes, both in terms of manifesting his power to judge and his power to save. This sovereign right is not limited merely to the Jewish people, Paul says, but extends to every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. That's what Paul is arguing in Romans 9, and that's what we're seeing illustrated in Exodus 10. Thanks be to God. We encounter the story of the ninth plague now, beginning in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Now it's hard for us as modern people to appreciate how truly terrifying and debilitating this Ninth plague of darkness must have been. We live in a world of streetlights and headlights, and we have flashlights on our cell phones. So darkness does not greatly affect us, certainly not in the way that it affected ancient people. Darkness was something to be feared in the ancient world. People certainly did not travel at night. If you were out and about after dark, you were assumed to be a thief. Regular people did not venture out after sunset. In addition, Darkness in the ancient world had psychological and spiritual resonance to an extent that we struggle to even imagine nowadays. Douglas Stewart puts it this way, speaking of the Egyptian people. He says, they considered confinement in darkness a grave punishment from God, even a sort of purposeful force and associated it with death, closed quote. To be trapped in your home, aware of being surrounded by a purposeful force, conscious that it represented in some way the wrath of a powerful and obviously sovereign God would have been absolutely terrifying. It clearly had a profound impact on Pharaoh. 
Once again, he's prepared to make certain concessions. But once again, they fall short of what is being demanded. Pharaoh is still bargaining with God. He believes himself to be speaking to a categorical equal. Yahweh has powers that he cannot match or even fully understand. But Pharaoh still believes himself a God, speaking and dealing with another God, a powerful God, obviously. Once again, he is prepared to make certain concessions, but once again, they fall short of what is being demanded. Pharaoh is still bargaining with God. He he believes himself speaking to a categorical equal. Yahweh has powers that he cannot match or even fully understand, obviously, but Pharaoh thinks of himself as a God, speaking to another, a greater God. So he is prepared to concede, but not to entirely surrender. But Moses has been charged by God to accept nothing less than Pharaoh's unconditional, total, unqualified surrender. That's what it means, of course, to truly repent. There's no bargaining in repentance. There are no strings. You can't hold anything back. You don't get to have reserves. You don't get to save face. You bow. You surrender. You agree. And you beg for mercy. But Pharaoh isn't there yet. And he is not willing to move any further. He tells Moses to go and to not come back. Like a child sticking his fingers in his ears, he's done listening. But of course, Yahweh isn't done talking. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.